Welcome to the Omfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Taylor Pierce and I'm economist of OMFIF's Economic and Monetary Policy Institute. I'm joined today by my colleague, Neil Williams, chief economist of OMFIF. Today, I'll be discussing with him the very particular case of Japan's monetary policy. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying that we at OMFIF were shocked and saddened to hear about the tragic and untimely death of Japan's former prime minister, Shinzo Abe. Our thoughts are with friends, colleagues, and contacts in Japan during a period of national mourning. Mr. Abe made profound contributions to economic policymaking. In many ways, his legacy continues to shape contemporary Japan's economy. The three-pronged approach to his Abenomics program included loose monetary policy, flexible fiscal policy aiming to spur growth while containing debt, and structural reforms like deregulation. The objective of this policy mix was to make the Japanese economy more competitive following the lost decade of the 1990s, in which Japan witnessed a period of minimal growth and persistent deflation. So welcome, Neil. This is a very interesting topic today. I look forward to discussing Japan's economic and monetary policy with you. Thank you, Taylor. So my first question is, unlike the US and Europe, which began the so-called unconventional monetary policy of quantitative easing or asset purchasing programs, Japan has been running QE for 24 years. So what is the purpose of Japan's unconventional monetary policy and particularly of the country's long-term quantitative easing? Well, as other central banks are now uh, flexing their muscles and trying to, to normalize, uh, Japan's authorities have every reason to prolong a policy loosening, uh, as you say, approaching its quarter of a century mark. Why is that? Well, the Bank of Japan's monetary dials will stay set to fight deflation. On the fiscal side, the three big budget splurges we had into COVID are unlikely to be reversed in full. And also, as you suggest, QE really will continue. So the late former Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Abe's three pillars, policy pillars of monetary and fiscal loosening and structural reform, no doubt, will be extended. You ask why QE? Well, QE has taken three forms. The first form back in the late 90s was really to help the banks by mopping up their commercial paper. And then as government debt began to spiral, that focus shifted to buying Japanese uh, government bonds to the extent that the Bank of Japan now holds more than half of the world's biggest government bond market and is now buying Japanese government bonds at around the same pace as net new supply is coming in. So the the scale of this is still huge. And the third form that QE has taken is the current form, and that is since 2016, the Bank of Japan has more specifically targeted yield level such that the amount of QE it does can now vary, but it's all focused on maintaining that level, which currently is being struck and held at uh, 0.25% for the 10-year JGB. So just as a sign of intention, as recently as mid-June, just as the US Fed, Bank of England and ECB were either normalising or talking about normalising policy, the Bank of Japan again dug its heels in by adding liquidity, just as the other central banks were, were, were doing the opposite. The hope, of course, is that things stay Uh, liquid, but also there is a further downward force on the end. So QE looks set to continue. Wow, that's a very different story than we're seeing in Western economies. I wonder, where is the Japanese economy post-COVID? Has this been successful? Uh, Are there any negative side effects? Well, the strains from COVID, of course, were similar on other major economies, but Japan's monetary and fiscal stimuli in the years before then were already losing their edge going into 2019, hence the need for the three big 
budget splurges they had uh, in 2020. So in terms of where we are, it's, it's pretty much it's as you were. And you talk about unintended consequences. Because we've had 24 years of providing liquidity, QE, perhaps in Japan at least, has become a bit of a drug. The more you use it, the more you need it. So Japan is, in, if anything, in a bit like a catch-22 in that it has to continue to supply liquidity to the system with the aim of domestic institutions specifically buying Japanese government bonds to help government finance debt funding costs remain low and also to look overseas for yield in the hope that that provides a further downward pressure on the yen. So in, in Japan's case, really, the Bank of Japan and the MOF together have so much skin in the game, they don't let now let monetary conditions tighten aggressively and it's kind of helpful in the short run that other central banks are doing the opposite, starting to withdraw stimulus with Japan keeping it on. Hmm, that's interesting. So what is the outlook for Japan going forward? And are the US, UK and Europe headed in the same direction? Well, it's, a bit, it's very unfashionable in the current climate to talk about Japanification, when, of course, most countries, most major countries are looking to fight inflation. Japan has the opposite goal which is that although its CPI, Consumer Price Index, has gone up because of international forces, the same factors elsewhere, its more representative economy-wide indicator, the GDP deflator, has still remained in the doldrums and negative. So in terms of going forward, you know, that the, the underlying forces, when we finally do, hopefully do, wash away the impact of COVID and this tragic war to the east, could still be ones that remind us of Japan in terms of the demographics uh, and in terms of rising government debt, and also in terms of what other central banks are referring to as a low R-star. And what they mean by that is the, if you like, the Goldilocks interest rate at which you can keep growth going and uh, at the same time fight inflation. Productivity also has been fairly low, keeping this down. Admittedly, there are differences between Japan and other major economies, of course, one of which is that when Japan turned on the TAP, the QE TAP in the late 90s, it was really acting alone at a time when world growth was fairly healthy. The US was growing at around 4%. Now, as back then, or now at least, the big four central banks have been acting in concert. And for Japan, there's been little appreciable benefit. And also the strong growth rates elsewhere, like in the US, like in the UK, are far from guaranteed as we deal with monetary normalization and geopolitics. The game changes for Japan going forward really are twofold. One is the labor market. Our, our analysis suggests that uh, Japan really could get some demand inflation through the system if its wage claims begin to be met on a sustained basis. And that's why next spring's Shunto, the annual coordinated pay round, bears fruit. So far, there have been one-off pay increases, but I think very little uh, sustained. And the second thing is, uh, if the Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance are successful in being able to hold down the yen as other central banks tighten, and deflation really could uh, re-emerge into inflation. The risk then, of course, is that if that's cost, not demand inflation, via higher import prices, that may be unpalatable politically. And also, there's the risk, of course, then, as a quid pro quo, this tips Japan into its sixth recession since it started running QE in the late 1990s. And that's that's twice as many as the US has experienced over the same time. So I suppose you could say summing up that it's likely that liquidity will have to stay plentiful. Mr. Abe was uh, spot on when he was suggest in this respect that um, getting Japan out of the doldrums and fighting the deflationary psychology would need just more 
than easy money that need fiscal expansion and structural reform. And going forward with Japan, its liquidity trap, it's likely we're, we're going to see an extension of these pillars uh, as we as we move ahead. Oh, well, for a number of reasons, it sounds like we're not likely to see any end of QE in sight for Japan for, for a while yet. This has been very informative. Thank you, Neil. And thank you to our listeners. For a deeper look into the uniqueness of Japan's macroeconomics, be sure to check out Neil's commentary piece, Breaking Japan's Deflationary Psychology, on the OMFIF website. And also be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever podcasts can be found. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast. 